Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. For Native Americans, a trip to the museum means seeing your culture on display. It's a conversation that has been going on for decades, right? This idea that what does it mean as a Native person to walk into a museum and see artifacts behind glass? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. A museum uses poetry to help listeners understand what it means to be indigenous today. Plus, we'll discuss what our region can learn from Kansas about renewable energy. We just have to stop thinking about electricity generation as a means of producing lots of electrons. It's a lot more complicated than that, but it can be a lot more environmentally sustainable than that. Also, as the leaves around New England put on their annual show, are you taking some time to enjoy the season? Autumn itself is not on demand. Autumn is not something you can binge two months from now. It's happening now. We'll go on Autumn Watch. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. More than 7% of children in public and private schools across the U.S., that's millions of kids nationwide, live with a parent who is undocumented. That's according to a Pew Research Center analysis. These children live with constant insecurity and fear of separation and the emotional and developmental consequences when a parent is deported. Connecticut Public Radio's Diane Orson reports on a Connecticut family coping with the psychological distress that has followed a mom's recent deportation. It didn't come as a complete surprise, says Miguel Torres. His wife, Glenda Cardenas Caballero, was undocumented and had an order of deportation from 2005. The family had tried for years to find a way for her to stay. They tried to deport her three times, but then we continued doing the appeals. We've been always complying with every single detail. It wasn't until she was at the curb of JFK Airport that she learned she would have to leave. Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers took her away, and their children watched. But first, some background. Glenda is from San Pedro Sulas, one of the most violent cities in Honduras, a country with one of the highest murder rates in the world. In 2005, when she was 24, she crossed the U.S. border illegally and met and married Miguel, a U.S. citizen from Puerto Rico. They moved to Waterbury with their two children, and Glenda was able to get a work permit and social security card. Things changed in early 2016, when Miguel and Glenda were told she'd have to start reporting to ICE. They complied with these orders until summer of this year. The last week of July, they came back to us and told us, you had to buy a ticket for August the 8th. She had to leave the country. After working with several attorneys, the family connected with New Haven immigration lawyer Glenn Formica. I stepped in at that point and filed an appeal of that decision and assumed that Glenda would be allowed more time. Early in the morning of August 8th, with no word yet from the Board of Immigration Appeals, Formica advised the family to comply with the ICE order and go to the airport. Miguel drove into New York City with Glenda in the front seat of the car and their children, 10 and 7 years old, in the back. We were expecting that we would come back with her on that day. When they got to the airport, they were met at the curb by ICE officers. I got a little bit nervous. 
and you know, I got a little bit upset. I to- told them not to touch her, that we were there voluntarily. Miguel phoned Formica, who immediately put in a call to the Board of Immigration Appeals. Then Formica spoke with the ICE officers. He told them there was still no decision, so she couldn't get on this flight. Minutes later, Formica got a call on the other phone line. Oh, the stay's been denied. So she ended up having to get on a plane without more than a few minutes' notice on the stay denial. And as this scene was unfolding, the children were watching. They didn't want to even give us the chance to to say goodbye as a family. At one point, I got very angry, and I told her, you go back and you say goodbye to the kids, you give them a hug, because you are leaving, okay? And you cannot just leave them just like that. And um, so she went back to uh, say goodbye to the kids and just left with the officers. In an email, ICE spokesman John Mohan confirms that Glenda was deported in August. He says there's no typical timeline for removals, which are done on a case-by-case basis. Miguel gets emotional as he describes how the separation has affected his children. It's, it's It's so overwhelming. Both of them cry oftenly, nighttime. They say, I want mommy, I need mommy. I have my 11-year-old daughter, which she was 10 years old at the, at the moment of the departure. Uh, well, she's been very depressed. Uh, she even told one of the teachers that she's very friendly with. She wanted to commit suicide and that she had a plan. She had to, a plan to hang herself. He says school staff are doing all they can, but this has had a profound impact on his children. They were both very happy kids. No longer. They're no longer happy kids. Miguel says he's explained that the family can't move to Central America to be with their mom. Then he suggests to me that we speak directly with Glenda. So we call her in Honduras and talk via FaceTime. She says, my daughter is depressed. The children's grades have dropped. They hardly sleep, hardly eat. They've lost a lot of weight. She tells me they've destroyed my family. Lawyer Glenn Formica says he's troubled by what appears to be a growing number of of stay-of-deportation denials coming in at the last minute. Had the family had more notice, he says the parents could have better prepared the kids, perhaps gotten professional help and involved school counselors. So that it doesn't come as this catastrophic event where you have a daughter sitting in the back seat of a car driving her mom to the airport going, is mom leaving today? Am I ever going to see my mom again? It's offensive that we have to wait until the curb of an airport to find out a decision from the Board of Immigration Appeals down in Virginia. That needs to change. Formica is currently pursuing humanitarian parole for Glenda, which would allow her to enter the U.S. for a period of time while her case is being processed. But he admits it's a long shot. In the vast majority of cases, deportees are barred from returning to the U.S. for 10 years. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Diane Orson. For more stories about immigration and deportation, visit our Facing Change page at nextnewengland.org. This past week, much of the region celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day. It's a holiday meant to contrast the celebration of Christopher Columbus. To mark this holiday, the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University has created a special poetry playlist meant to celebrate contemporary Native culture while challenging visitors to examine their understanding of what it's like to be indigenous today. 
WBUR's Andrea Shea brings us to the museum. Enter the Hall of North American Indian at the Peabody Museum, and you're greeted by a recording of thunder and rain from the Great Plains. You see drawings by Lakota Sioux warriors, a headdress, sitting bull's tobacco bag, and sharpened objects of war tucked inside display cases. For Shelley Lowe and many other Native Americans, this experience raises questions. It's a conversation that has been going on for decades, right? This idea that what does it mean as a Native person to walk into a museum and see artifacts behind glass? Lowe, a member of the Navajo Nation, is executive director of the Native American program at Harvard University. Artifacts aren't supposed to just be looked at. They're supposed to be used on a daily basis. It's not why Native people create artifacts, usually. Lowe is part of the team behind the museum's new Native American Poets Playlist. They created it to help reframe and interrogate what it means to be Native American today. So to kind of talk about that in a sense that let's put it into a poem and then let's put it out there for people to listen to while they're actually standing there looking at the artifacts behind the glass, right, that you can't touch, that can't be used. I think it's very powerful. I'm Trevino Brings Plenty, and I'm going to read Not Just Anybody Can Have One. So I'll use my tribal enrollment until it disappears until I'm kicked out of my tribe for questioning the motives of nepotism, until the U.S. government makes policy change, until there's enough rumor to make it true. Natalie Diaz Imoik, Hamakavch Idum, Hokulo Imanch, American Arithmetic, Nikonov. Native Americans make up less than 1% of the population of America. 0.8% of 100%. Oh, mine efficient country. Visitors listen to the poetry through headsets as they wander the galleries filled with artifacts. Tommy Pico's poem confronts the museum setting head on. I can't write a nature poem because that conversation happens in the Hall of South American Peoples in the American Museum of Natural History between two white ladies in buttery shawls as they pass a display case of traditional garb from one tribe or another. It doesn't really matter to anyone. And that word natural in natural history hangs. Pico is a Kumeyaay writer and podcaster living in Los Angeles. Native American, indigenous, Indian, however you want to say it, we're here, we're alive, our voices matter. We aren't relics of the past. We're a part of a continuing, changing pop culture landscape. Pico's anger over the preservation of historic objects while living Native American people suffer from endemic rates of suicide and health issues leaps through the headphones. I hope they come away with the idea that American Indian culture is dynamic and can be appreciated without being co-opted or without being appropriated. What if by not wearing a headdress in your music video or changing your damn mascot and perhaps adding 0.05% of personal annoyance to your life for the 20 minutes it lasts. The 103 young people who tried to kill themselves on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation over the past four months wanted to live like 50% more. Some of the poems are edgy. Some of them are very, you know, a lot of pathos in there. 
Larry Spotted Crow Mann, a writer, healer, and storyteller, was part of the Poem Selection Committee. He's Nipmuc and lives in Webster, home of the lake with the longest name in the world. Lake Charagagamog, Man Charagagamog, Man Charagagamog, Man Charagagamog. <laughs> Mann says the poets represent tribes from the east, west, north, and south. The writings wrestle with issues including colonialism, the legacy of Indian boarding schools, climate change, and cultural exploitation. For Mann, the image of artifacts and poets intermingling inside a museum is potent. I heard an elder once say that uh, a museum is a crime scene. It's an active crime scene. You know, where where all these artifacts are like kind of accumulated and put in one place, things that were taken. And it kind of speaks to all that, those times and those difficulties and the vicissitudes of being an indigenous person and how we're going to overcome and move forward as a people. Margaret Noden is keeping her ancestral language alive through her writing and teaching of indigenous literary studies at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. I always write the poems in Anishinaabem one first, and then I try to do justice to them in English. As frozen flakes fell in clusters, sun high in the sky, snow deep outside, he began to bend his thoughts, considering what is true. And what is not, considering Scotty and Puckwis and the way they walked on the snow. Noden says these days we all seem to have playlists running through our lives, but this one you don't necessarily expect. She believes Harvard and the museum pulled the Native American poets' playlist together respectfully by involving the Native community in the process. The poetry goes out, people enjoy it, the poetry comes down, but those relationships are still there as an experience to see more of that happen in that city and in connection with Harvard in particular is just a really good thing. Long overdue. (laughs) Especially considering the school and the museum stand on the former homeland of indigenous people. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea. The Poetry Playlist is available at the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University until November 30th. For more information, visit nextnewengland.org. Coming up, what Kansas can teach New England about wind energy. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Big news in the world of wind energy this week. Denmark-based Orsted will acquire the developer of America's first-ever offshore wind farm, Rhode Island-based Deepwater Wind. Orsted will buy Deepwater Wind for $510 million. The CEO, Henrik Paulson, says that offshore wind is experiencing international growth. We can now say that the cost of green energy is fully competitive with black energy. And as such, there's no economic reason for not accelerating the transition to green energy. The company currently has offshore wind projects in development with Rhode Island, Connecticut, Maryland, and New York. When combined with Orsted's other assets, the two companies say they hope to deliver offshore wind power to seven states on the East Coast by 2030. 
Deepwater Wind CEO Jeff Grabowski says partnerships like these are typical in the offshore wind industry to complete big projects. It's a way of bringing more talent to the table and more people and talent and the right set of skills to take on these complicated projects. And it also helps to have you know, multiple companies with uh, the ability to put together the dollars to invest. Grabowski says the company plans to hire more people for its Providence office and plans to keep their office in New Bedford open. The agreement is expected to be finalized by the end of this year. Even as New England is investing in wind energy projects off our coasts, the amount of wind energy we use still pales in comparison to states in the so-called wind belt. One such example is Kansas. And we spoke with Philip Warburg about what states in our region can learn from states that we usually don't think of as leaders in renewable energy. Warburg is the former president of the Conservation Law Foundation, and he's author of the book Harness the Sun, America's Quest for a Solar-Powered Future, and the author of a recent article, What Red State Kansas Can Teach Blue State Massachusetts About Renewable Energy. Philip, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. We were interested in your recent article in which you wrote about what the state of Massachusetts can learn from the state of Kansas. So tell us, what do you think Massachusetts can learn from Kansas about wind power? Well, I think Kansas is a very pragmatic, very conservative state where you wouldn't necessarily think renewable energy was taking off. But in fact, it's really one of the leaders in the nation. 36% of its total power generation comes from wind. And that's not because they have some deep abiding concern about climate change. It's because they see the economics of wind power as benefiting them individual ranchers and farmers who get an annuity from the wind turbines on their property worth much more than if that small amount of land was used for agricultural purposes. Local payments to help with various community projects, retail revenues from all of the construction workers who come through and the operational staff who stay there. And I think there's also a sense of connection between our reliance upon foreign energy sources and the wars we've been fighting in the Middle East. We live in a pretty protected bubble in many parts of New England where not that many people go off to fight wars in the Middle East, but in places like Kansas, that's not the case. And one economic development chief said to me, either we have to put wind turbines on our prairie or we have to bury our children beneath our prairie. So that's a fairly stark perspective on one aspect of renewable energy's benefits to Kansas. And it sounds as though the, the argument is is being made that energy independence that you can do in a homegrown way is something that, that Kansas can do by harnessing the wind, but it's not that dissimilar from the same argument for drilling for oil in Oklahoma or drilling for natural gas in, in Pennsylvania or Colorado. It's the same type of argument being made. Yeah, I don't think there's some higher set of values attached to wind relative to those fossil fuels. And in fact, those fossil fuels, as you say, are being developed aggressively in places like Oklahoma and actually in Kansas as well. One added benefit that this rural county in Kansas, where I did a lot of my research for my wind book, developed was a wind technology training program at the community college. It started in about 2007 with some five students 
Today, it's got 150 students, and they find jobs immediately on graduating from their two-year certificate program. In fact, they've expanded now to include solar technology, so it's been renamed a Renewable Energy Technology Program. Again, not something you'd necessarily expect at a community college in the middle of Kansas farm country, but in fact, it provides local employment for a lot of people, including the children of farmers who can't find gainful employment on the farm, and it's really seen as a huge economic boon. One of the reasons why they're able to get 36% of their power from wind is because, well, Kansas is a windy place. Just how much windier is it than, <laughs> than say, Massachusetts? Well, it really is in what's often called the wind belt, which extends from Texas on up through the Dakotas. And in virtually all of those states, you see elevated levels of commitment to wind power because the wind resource is so prodigious, much more so than on land, for example, in Massachusetts. I think that is one of the constraints that we face here. There is better wind in parts of Maine on land, in New Hampshire on land, not so much in Connecticut or Rhode Island. And we're beginning to develop those, although there's a lot greater concern about viewshed protection, noise issues, et cetera, in our more densely settled region than there is in wide open spaces in places like Kansas or, or the Dakotas. One of the great advantages of offshore wind for New Englanders and for people in the Northeast is that that offshore wind is every bit as strong as the wind that you find blowing through the Great Plains. It happens to be very close to major metropolitan centers, so if we can tap that offshore wind, we will be both providing a great new renewable energy resource without creating the kinds of resistance that we experienced here in New England and specifically in Massachusetts to the first proposed offshore wind farm, Cape Wind, in Nantucket Sound. So much like in the experience of Kansas, if the market itself can shift in a way so that this is more competitive, it's less expensive, and it can be something that will compete with dirtier burning types of fuel, all of a sudden now we, we may see more and more development. But there's always going to be a cap here in the Northeast, isn't there, Philip? I mean, there's always going to be only so much land or even offshore land that we can harvest the wind on. Well, if you actually take offshore into account, I'm not sure that limit is so clear. Hmm. And if you combine various forms of renewable energy, we're really looking at a transformative moment, I think, in our overall electricity economy. Vermont has set its renewable portfolio standard as providing a minimum of 75% of all electric generation from renewables by 2032. So that's a pretty ambitious standard. And Massachusetts, actually, the legislature just in July has adopted a new standard that would get us to 50% reliance on renewable technology by 2045. So will we be getting all of our electricity from renewables by the middle of this century? Very likely not. Could we be getting half of our electricity from some combination of wind, solar, biomass, geothermal, small-scale hydro? Absolutely. But what about Massachusetts' big investment in hydro coming from Quebec? The fact is a lot of environmentalists, people who want to see more renewable development in and around Massachusetts and across the New England region, look at the plans to bring down hydropower from Hydro-Quebec through the state of Maine as something that diverts our attention from making the types of investment in homegrown renewables that might get us to that point that you're describing. 
Well, I think that's true. I think that there is competition between different sources of renewable energy. We can't think about unitary solutions. I think one of the mistakes that we allowed ourselves during the 20th century was to focus on a very small number of very problematic technologies, such as coal, such as nuclear. And once you build those technologies, you develop expertise in those technologies as well as an economic investment, and it makes it harder and harder to diversify. But I think what we really need to do is look at a highly diversified energy economy that doesn't just talk about the generation of power, but it talks about the wise use of power and the integration of storage. And that's one area where hydro actually has a significant role to play. Pumped storage is a means of capturing, for example, surplus wind power when it's generated or surplus solar power when it's generated and releasing that power at the appropriate times when there's demand that exceeds the supply of electricity. So I think we just have to stop thinking about electricity generation as a means of producing lots of electrons. It's a lot more complicated than that, but it can be a lot more environmentally sustainable than that. With all of the reporting that you've done, the places that you've traveled, both looking at wind and solar power outside of this region, what are the things that you think we can really take away at the level of public policy or maybe even mindset that perhaps get in our way when we're trying to figure out how to make renewables even more part of the mix in New England? Well, I think if we took a longer historical view of the New England landscape, and I mean that quite literally, we might be more forgiving of the introduction of technologies like wind and solar. If you look at New England's landscape during the 19th century, it was largely a farmed landscape. We now have reforested New England because farming just doesn't make that much economic sense on a large scale in New England, and we can't compete with places like Kansas. So we're very attached to thinking of New England as pristine forests when, in fact, they're not pristine forests. So we don't want to compromise that visual beauty for the sake of renewable energy. I think we have to think in a more expansive way about what it means to integrate renewables into our landscape. So it might mean more wind turbines, for example, in the Berkshire Mountains or in the White Mountains or in parts of Maine. And I think that we also can learn from Kansas in looking off our shore and saying, well, actually, we can develop wind power on a very large, you could say, industrial scale without creating the kinds of reactions that we got from vacationers on the Cape and in Martha's Vineyard to the Cape Wind Project. If we are able to build large-scale wind that does not interfere with our viewshed issues and that does not create problems in terms of fisheries and the like, I think we can see an equivalency in terms of what is happening in places like Kansas. Philip Warburg, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Philip Warburg is the former president of the Conservation Law Foundation, and he's the author of the recent article, What Red State Kansas Can Teach Blue State Massachusetts About Renewable Energy. We've been reporting on the slow rollout of legal marijuana across New England, but there's an associated industrial crop, hemp, that is already churning out a legal product called CBD. Those letters stand for cannabidiol, a compound found in hemp that's become widely available for many uses. New Frontier Data, a market research firm, estimates that Americans spent $367 million on CBD products last year, and they expect sales to top a billion by 2020. 
John Kalish went to Vermont to meet the hemp farmers who are growing for this growing market. He starts by taking us to the University of Vermont. When I visited the UVM research farm in Alberg in July, there were two acres of hemp in the ground growing next to a field of winter rye. Not all of it was for CBD research. Abba Gupta is the crops and soil coordinator for UVM Extension. We've got two different varieties of fiber and three different varieties of grain. They were planted out at three different planting dates. Lawmakers created an official state research and development program for hemp in Vermont. Agronomist Heather Darby thinks that, along with the widespread availability of seed, are creating a growing interest in hemp. And many Vermonters have been calling her for advice. Most people are looking for markets. Some of the questions are, is this a real opportunity or is it just a bubble we see floating by? You know, where can we actually tap into this? And the markets are really still developing, especially if we're not talking about CBD production. But CBD is what everyone's talking about. Although the FDA forbids claims about CBD's purported health benefits, demand for CBD as a treatment for pain, anxiety, insomnia, and other woes is growing. CBD is not psychoactive, which means it won't get you high. Kalev Freeman is a physician and scientist affiliated with the Nutraceutical Science Laboratory in Waterbury. CBD has not met the most rigorous levels of evidence, which would be randomized controlled trials at multiple centers. CBD hasn't met that criteria yet. Stepping back, however, there's historical and anecdotal and case report data that is so overwhelmingly in support of CBD's benefits that it's very hard to say that there's no evidence for it. Which is why a cottage industry has sprung up in Vermont, producing a wide array of CBD products, capsules, tincture, doggy treats, body creams, beverages, and candy. At Nutty Steffs in Middlesex, you can buy CBD-infused chocolate in various doses and shapes. Jacqueline fernandez Riki owns the shop. CBD products are 30% of our sales this year. We introduced them six months ago. You sell a CBD chocolate bar three ounces for $20? Yes. Kind of a pricey chocolate bar. This is very much more than a chocolate bar. CBD is also showing up in honey, coffee, and tea. That's what's happening with the CBD from Joe and Rebecca Pimentel's hemp crop. They pay to have the CBD extracted from the hemp grown on their farm in Stockbridge. These are our greenhouses. So we have about five different strains of genetics here. The Pimentels opened a commercial kitchen in nearby Bethel to make CBD balm, honey, and tincture. They also collaborated with Long Trail Brewery on a CBD beer dubbed the Medicator, but it was ordered off the market by federal authorities. Their CBD is now used in a cold brew made by Abracadabra Coffee in Woodstock and by Dobra Tea and Tom Girl in Burlington. Both of those companies use our CBD-infused honey. I think you're going to see it everywhere. We sell hemp seeds and flowers, just about everything, including a stellar selection of CBD products and a heavy focus on organics. At the Green State Gardener store in Burlington, owner Dylan Rapp says his company will sell a million dollars in CBD products this year. He has his own line of CBD edibles, which includes a $50 bottle of CBD gummies. 
We're seeing boomers come in for joint pain, but we're also seeing a lot of millennials and really everybody coming in for anxiety and just the mood stabilizing effect that CBD has. Rap will soon release CBD-infused sparkling water and soda. As a product class, I think the sky's the limit for CBD. There are now stores in Lindenville, St. Albans, Brattleboro, and Middlebury solely devoted to hemp or CBD products. Shane Lynn is the executive director of the Champlain Valley Dispensary, which runs two stores. He complains that profit margins are tight and suspects that prices for CBD will drop as the hemp supply grows. The acreage devoted to hemp in the U.S. more than doubled this year and is reportedly tripled in a couple of western states. You got to think, hey, Kentucky, and then you got to think Colorado. This is really a world marketplace. How are the Vermont farmers going to compete outside of Vermont? Among those who think this fall's hemp harvest will result in lower prices is Joel Bedard, the founder of the Vermont Hemp Company. Everyone's so excited about cannabinoids, and they want to try and make some good money first, and then when it all stabilizes, they're going to realize, okay, this actually is a food crop. This is so much more than just cannabinoids. CBD, of course, is not the only cannabinoid. There are others with reputed medical benefits, including CBG and CBC. Seth Crawford, a hemp seed breeder in Oregon, predicts that CBG is poised to take off. Crawford notes that the crystalline form of CBD sells for as much as $5,000 a pound and that crystalline CBG goes for triple that amount. As new cannabinoids become available, they become expensive. When these new compounds come online, it's substantial amounts of money that can be made by farmers in this industry. Crawford's Oregon-bred hemp seeds account for about 50 acres of this year's Vermont hemp crop. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Kalish. Coming up, as the leaves change, it's time for Autumn Watch. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Autumn is the quintessential New England season. Thousands of leaf peepers travel here to soak in the beauty of our colorful trees, pick apples, and take Instagrams in cozy sweaters. It's gotten so big, in fact, that this year, Autumn in New England has become a giant live primetime TV event. Yeah, PBS and BBC are teaming up to produce something called Autumn Watch New England. For three nights, starting on Wednesday, October 17th, PBS stations will be telling the stories of New England's favorite season. Well, at least it's my favorite season here. Travel expert Samantha Brown is co-host of the show. Samantha, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Could you explain what Autumn Watch is? Because it seems like it's a pretty big undertaking. It is. It's huge. So Autumn Watch is a live event that will be on a Wednesday, October 17th, the 18th and 19th at 8 p.m. on your PBS stations. And it is to celebrate all things autumn, from the fall foliage to the festivals, the food, the customs, and the customs, they range from our Native American populations to early European to modern day. But it is everything we love about this very fleeting time of year. 
So you're presenting this as a live show. Why this format? Because obviously there's a lot of great travel programs and magazines that celebrate all the things you just said. But what's the reason behind doing this as a, as a big live TV event? Well, I know from, from my point of view, um, I love the live event because it makes it immediate and now. And, uh, you know, these days we consume uh, content anytime we want. It's on demand. And we binge watch programs a month after they are presented. But autumn itself is not on demand. Autumn is not something you can binge two months from now. It's happening now. So the live event really um, heightens that reality that these are the moments of the year that we take time as a community, as people, as a, a nation, and just enjoy the change from summer to winter. So this program, this idea, comes from the BBC, who you're working with on this. Talk about the decision to do it in New England. I mean, for us, very provincially, we think that this is the best possible place to celebrate autumn. But tell me a bit more about the BBC's plans for this, because... You know, obviously, autumn happens elsewhere, too. Exactly. You know, I'm from New Hampshire, so that was my opinion. I said, well, I know I know why you're here, but, you know, I've, <laughs> I've traveled all over the United States, and it is experienced elsewhere. And what I didn't realize about my own region is that we have a spectrum of color that is unlike anywhere else in the nation. We have the highly valuable red color, which comes out with our sugar maples. So we have reds and oranges where a lot of uh, other states and mountain regions have yellows. But we have the, the great spectrum of color. As a native New Englander, do you think that we take this for granted because it's right here all the time or at least once a year? You know, I, I don't think so. I have loved it since I was a child. Um, I spent 20 years growing up in New England, and it was something that I always looked forward to, and it is still my favorite time of year. And, you know, I hear a lot about, well, how do you know it's going to be peak foliage while you're there? For a New Englander, there is no such thing. It's it's beautiful no matter what, because there's so much that goes into it and so much of the, the temperature change. And again, the celebrations that happen on the weekends from apples to pumpkins, that everything about it is a peak experience. So much of your travel reporting revolves, though, around the culture of a place. And how do you hope to present the culture of autumn in New England during this program? So for me, culture is always about the effort that goes into creating the experiences that we travelers just get to show up and have. And I think that is something that as travelers, we do take for granted that people have worked generations to create something that we just get to walk in. So for instance, I did a segment for Autumn Watch in Wareham, Mass, and that's right at the, the beginning of Cape Cod, and that's where they harvest cranberries. And to understand that this goes back so many generations, and the idea of harvesting cranberries was something that, you know, the, the Native American population passed on to the European settlers, and we have it today. I didn't realize that. And that's what I always want to convey to an audience that we always need to respect the, the, the work that went into what we get to just enjoy and not just be, you know, be less consumers and more a part of the community. A lot of the reporting that you did in advance of this live program also includes a look at our ecosystems, our environment, and some of the, the animal species here, including one uh, about the tree swallow migration in southern Connecticut. What can you tell us about that? So this is something I had never experienced in my life. Um, the tree swallows do a massive migration down to what other wonderful southern Caribbean islands that they're headed to, but there's a roosting nest point on the Connecticut River. And so for talk about fleeting, every night for maybe two weeks, hundreds of thousands of tree swallows 
gather. So you look up at a sky and it's blank. And within 15 minutes, the sky is filled with hundreds of thousands of birds. And then they start to create these beautiful undulating shapes as they are all kind of figuring out what to do. And then one by one, and then all of them just drop. And it looks like it's raining birds down into this roosting site. And then within 15 minutes, it's over. And it's as if nothing happened. And so this is something that you get to experience. And and we spend a lot of time in the show, in Autumn Watch, understanding how the the season affects the animals, whether it's a migration or just sort of their nocturnal patterns. What are some other stories that, that you're planning on telling over the course of this uh, this few days? We are going to do everything from a, a lot of wildlife, from moose to the monarch migration, also great white sharks, the tree swallows, which I got to participate in, the customs, of course, the foods and the festivals. Uh, I'll also be going to Laconia for the pumpkin festival, um, which is one of the largest in the United States in my home state of New Hampshire. And so it's just a way of showing just how all types of people enjoy this one time of year, whether it's wildlife to customs. For the Native American population, we will be with the Narragansett tribe, which is out of Rhode Island, and they can trace their roots back to 30,000 years. This is based on archaeological evidence. So again, we take we take a little bit from everybody and everything that contributes to this great time of year. It sounds as though some of the stories are presenting true surprise for you and the other other reporters, because I think that one of the things about autumn in New England that we cherish is that it's kind of in itself like a, a warm, cozy sweater. We know what to expect, right? The, the leaves fall, the cider mulls, uh, <laughs> the apples are picked, etc., mm-hmm. uh, and the pumpkins are carved. Mm-hmm. But but you seem to be presenting a lot of things about autumn in this region that are, are new or surprising. Right. I mean, again, growing up in this region, I don't think I've ever considered moose, you know, or the great white. So, and also paying attention to what happens in our backyard with animals from squirrels to wild turkeys. And I guess it's just drawing that attention to everything that contributes to this time of year. It's just, again, to give people pause and understand everything that happens, the effort of everyone from people to animals to the leaves that make this a special time. I have to ask you one last question, and this has been been sort of puzzling me. I've been trying to figure out how this is going to work. Mm-hmm. You're doing a, a live evening TV event. Yes. Um, but it's at night in the fall in New England. <laughs> how are we going to, you know, see stuff? Great, good, good question. So a lot of it are these uh, tape segments that we've been doing all along that we'll throw to. But we begin every night at our campsite in on Squam Lake in New Hampshire, and we're around a campfire, and that's just going to set the stage and the tone for the wonderful storytelling that you're about to see. So of course it's going to be dark out. So you're like, well, how do we see the foliage? We're going to show you the foliage in the segments that we did during the day. Oh, okay, I'll bring the marshmallow. <laughs> You got it. I'll bring the chocolate. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Samantha Brown is co-host of the PBS BBC three-part series, Autumn Watch New England. It premieres October 17th, and it runs through the 19th at 8 p.m. on many PBS stations. We'll have more information on our website, nextnewengland.org. Samantha also hosts the PBS show, Places to Love. Samantha, thanks so much, and good luck. This will be fun. Thank you very much. You may have noticed it's the year of the squirrel in New England. They've never had so much fame and never been the subject of so much attention. It's partly because they've put themselves in the spotlight, or maybe in our headlights. Their populations have boomed in recent years, fed by a glut of acorns. And as they run across roads in search of more food, many don't make it. 
The thing is, all these squirrels, well, they're not just a problem on the highways, as NHPR's Brita Green reports. Scott Borthwick can't even drive down the street without a memory of one of his jobs coming right, to mind. So this yellow unit here on the end, I got flying squirrels out of there. He runs a wildlife control company out of Canaan. This brick house here, flying squirrel, our red squirrels had chewed through the back, and one was actually inside the house in the bathroom. Squirrel complaints make up 75% of his business. He recently had to hire another employee. He's getting double the demand he had last year, and that was double the year before. This, now this place here, I've taken bats, squirrels, skunks, woodchucks, you name it. Today, we're in his white pickup, headed to a call about 10 miles south of Lebanon. We pull into the driveway of a beautiful old brick house, sun shining through the yellowing leaves of a giant maple out back. Carol Little, the homeowner, answers the door. Just tell me what's going on and where. Okay. So we've had recurring problems with what I'm told are flying squirrels. Okay. I can show you outside. Yep. Maybe you should look at that. Um, I don't know whether the gray, what the gray squirrels are doing this year. We have tons of them, as you know. Right. Outside, Borthwick points his binoculars up towards where the house's brick sides meet the roof. He points out holes he can see, leading straight into the attic. Yeah, that's quite a gap. That's interesting. Perfect access points um, for the rodents, he says. Are you, where, are you hearing activity, seeing activity? Oh, yeah. I didn't. Uh, I, I heard it a couple nights ago. It didn't last night. Okay. And they get real busy some nights. Mm-hmm. Chatter, 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 and yep. scamper, scamper, scamper. Borthwick directs us inside for more inspection. We climb the stairs to the drop-down door to the attic. He climbs through on a ladder. Carol Little waits anxiously below for a word. Her face is now eye-level with his boots. Things look pretty good up here, he says. Yeah. But then... Uh-oh. Oh, I didn't like that. All right, so what you have here is on the outside wall, one, two... At least three flying squirrel toilets. For the uninitiated, squirrels tend to use the same location repeatedly to do their business. Over time, their feces and urine meld together and liquefy, often forming a brown stain that'll start to run down the wall. Borthwick climbs down the ladder to explain more. And you've got your your rafter beams going down, Mm -hmm. and in between three of them there, there is a toilet. Mm Flying squirrels like these, he says, are common in houses, but they can be a big nuisance because they'll live there year-round, chew through wires, and can be tricky to get rid of. Borthwick says for this house, he'd seal the holes and install a one-way door for a period of time so the squirrels can get out, but they can't get back in. It'll cost about $800. Little says she'll think it over. She thanks him, and we get back on the road. Yes, hi, uh, Scott Borthwick from Estate Wildlife Control. You called about a flying squirrel in your bathroom. Along the way, Borthwick gets an urgent call from a woman nearby. She had a flying squirrel soaring across her living room. She thinks she has it trapped now in her bathroom. She just had a round of chemotherapy, she says, and she just doesn't have the bandwidth to deal with this. Borthwick says he'll be right over. Hi. Hey there. I'm Scott. The woman's house is small, a single story. It's bright yellow, surrounded by woods. She shows us the bathroom. At this point, she's sealed gaps in the door frame with a haphazard arrangement of bed sheets and what looks like insulation foam. Oh, it's in there. Yeah. Borthwick and I squeeze ourselves inside, shut the door. It's a small space, painted baby blue. So when I spook this thing, it's going to jump. So no screaming. He starts grabbing at hand towels, moving the shower curtain back and forth. He goes through the cabinet, checks behind the toilet, but he's at a loss. Is, it, is there a window? I don't know. No. So it must have gotten in the house then? Oh, no, 
not sure how it got in, but I don't think it's in here anymore. He decides to try one more place, a deep built-in shelf above the sink. He actually has to climb up on the counter to reach his hands in. First thing he encounters is a wig stored on a glass head. He takes it out gingerly and rests it on the sink. Then he reaches his arms back deeper, all the way up to his elbows. Oh, I got him. It's in this bag. He's in the wig bag? Yep. Oh my gosh. Borthwick holds up the poor thing, no bigger than my hand, wrapped in a plastic wig bag. It's gray and brown, perfectly still, with black whiskers and a white nose, two lopsided teeth sticking out from the bottom of its mouth. Meanwhile, in the living room, Lois, the homeowner, is watching TV. He was in this bag. He was in the bag? And He's in the bag right now. Oh, good. And you're going to get rid of it? I'm taking him out. So is this, this bag something you need? I think it had a... I think it had a... The hair piece in it or something. Yeah. But where are you going to put him out there? Well, I was going to maybe put him in a trap, but uh, it's going to be hard to get him out of the bag and into a trap, so I might just let him loose if that's okay. No. I that's, want him. You are. <laughs> I want him across rivers, mountains, <laughs> up in the sky. I don't care where he is, but you can. <laughs> All right, let me see what I can do. Borthwick loads the squirrel into a cage in the back of his truck, and we hit the road. Over the course of the day, he tells me again and again, man is part of the wildlife management equation. What he means is we're not victims, but enablers. We move into their habitat and build houses that are way better than the cold trees they're used to. And then, if that weren't enough, we set up bird feeders outside, luring them closer with seeds and nuts. And over time, we leave open holes in our roofs and walls and floors so they can climb right in. Uh, I'm a selectman in my town, and I'm active in the Masons. So, like, all the people I know in the Masons and the people I know in the town are all asking me, what's going on? What's going on with all these squirrels? It's sort of like your moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm the the squirrel philosopher. But uh, (laughs) unless it's a real emergency, man, a quick job like that bathroom situation, Borthwick's waiting list is now running many weeks long. Meanwhile, the squirrel calls they continue to come in. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Breacha Green. If you want to find the podcast of next, you can get us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do, be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Glenn Alexander and Noriko Okabe. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.